This B-Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. Loved and trusted by more than 1 million teachers, IXL enhances your teaching and takes work off your plate so you can make an even bigger impact on your students. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable, real-time insights. Strengthen daily instruction, close knowledge gaps quickly, and set every student up for success. Want to bring IXL to your school? Learn more at IXL.com B-E. That's IXL.com B-E. We are proud to partner with MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Students can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, wind time, activity periods, RTI, counselor and teacher appointments, and so much more. Even my favorite, Synergy Time. And with its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, my flex learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash B-E. Hi, folks. Welcome to the Cybertraps podcast. I'm Jethro Jones, host of the podcast, Transformative Principal and author of the book, School X, How to Redesign Your School for the People Right in Front of You. Greetings. I'm Frederick Lane, an author, attorney, and educational consultant based in New York. I'm the author of 10 books, including most recently, Cybertraps for Educators 2.0, Raising Cyberethical Kids, and Cybertraps for Expecting Moms and Dads. I also spent 10 years on the Burlington, Vermont School Board, which informs a lot of what we talk about. Jethro and I are teaming up to bring timely, entertaining, and useful information to teachers, parents, and others about the risks arising from the use and misuse of digital devices. Over the coming weeks and months, we'll be talking to some of the nation's leading experts in the fields of education, parenting, sociology, cyber safety, educational technology, and so much more. That's what we have today. We'll talk with Mark here in just a minute. Join us as we look at what it takes to better navigate our increasingly high-tech world. Happy Thursday, Jethro. Yes, uh, I'm excited that uh, you're... um, your bio keeps getting longer every time we record. So, <laughs> Is excited really the right word? <laughs> yeah, maybe I should have used the word interested. Um, it's intriguing. People are just learning more about you. That's great. And I think maybe I should start sharing a little bit more so that people know a little bit more about me as well. I, I think that's great. We've got a 40-minute podcast. We'll do 10 minutes of intro each. For- <laughs> <laughs> there you go. People will love that. Well, let's get on to our guest. I'm excited to have Mark Netka on the program today. He is an American entrepreneur and the CEO of STS Education. And it has become a national ed tech company that has curated a set of purpose-built education products, services, solutions that revolve around four areas, operational sustainability, collaboration, engagement, STEAM, and software. And let me tell you why I wanted Mark on the program. I was introduced to Mark a few weeks ago, and the um, guy, Joseph Klossy, who introduced us, said that Mark is unique in that he puts together panels of decision makers to advise him about what the needs are in schools so that he's not just a company trying to sell technology to schools, 
but it's a company that's trying to solve problems that schools are having. And so uh, I was really excited to talk to him and then I met him and thought, man, that he's going to be a great guest. So Mark, welcome to the Cybertraps podcast. We're excited to have you. Thank you guys. I appreciate being invited. Yes. I'll, I'll thank Joe. Joe actually lives uh, pretty close to me. So I, I hear he has a pretty nice house on the beach, actually. I just found that out. So I'm going to have to oh, visit good. him. Yeah, I'm going to have to go visit too. That that certainly helps having a nice beach house. So um, so let's talk a little bit about your philosophy, first of all, about selling educational technology to schools. Because I think this is an important place to start and talk about why why you're doing this and what your goals are. Well, my philosophy in general has always been not to focus on any single transaction. Uh, In other words, um, focus on the lifetime value of having someone as a customer. Because if I do that, I'm always gonna do what's in their best interest, not mine, because I wanna make sure they continue to purchase from me. If I am short-term thinker and I think about any individual transaction and making all my money on that transaction and you end up buying something you don't like and aren't happy with it, I never get another sale out of you. Now, I was tell my sales reps that work for me, that's easy for me to say because I'm the owner, I don't get paid on commission. But I do believe if you have that philosophy, it does come through when you talk to your customers, they tend to trust you more. And throughout my career, because I started in selling, it's just proven to be true. People call me that have become friends that work at schools just to ask my opinion about some solution they're looking to implement, whether I sell it or not. And, and what we find is that if the focus is on a short term and a school buys a piece of technology and it doesn't work out, it can have disastrous effects and it can affect so many things from family home life to things in the classroom to future decisions about purchasing technology. And so the, it's a really important discussion to have. So how can schools make better choices about the technology that they purchase? Tuning into, obviously, podcasts like this is a great resource. I'm just a big believer, like Joe um, Clossy said, of bringing other people together who have already gone through similar experiences. We talked about this a little before we got on the podcast about these mastermind groups and getting feedback from your peers. And so that's why, like at our company, we have a board of directors or a board of advisors that are made up of technology directors across the country that we meet with quarterly And before I even introduce a product to sell, I want to get their opinion on, I've even, you know, sent them samples and said, what do you think of this product? And I'll get interesting comments like, hey, it's cool, but it doesn't, doesn't move the needle. Right. So I'm like, all right, then I'm not going to waste my time selling it because that's not the type of product I want to sell. I recommend doing the same if you're in a school, right? Talk to your peers, talk to people outside your school district who have already probably implemented. There's nothing you're going through. That's always been my premise. There's nothing you're going through that's new. Someone else somewhere has gone through the same thing and you need to find out what the pitfalls are because there's so many hidden traps, as you know, in technology. Nothing is simple. Nothing works out of the box. Like you're, like all the technology providers promise you, just turn it on, it works. Nope, never ever happens. So. That would be my recommendation. I mean, to the extent that you can leverage someone like us. And that, that I think actually, Mark, is, is so valuable. As, as I mentioned, I spent 10 years on the Burlington, Vermont School Board, and the arc and pace of technology was so fast. 
when I first got on the board, we were looking at the, you know, parachute drop of thousands of devices, one-to-one initiatives, so on and so forth. And by the time I got off the board in 2011, the kids were bringing in more sophisticated devices than we could buy every single year because the development cycle was so quick. So how do you think that school boards and school communities should react to the pace of change? I realize nothing's new, but things do seem to be accelerating. Especially with COVID, right? The one thing it has accelerated is the move to one to one. I hope that schools and school boards are thinking now about what happens at the end of COVID when all these devices come back into the schools and they're not prepared because their networks haven't been upgraded to handle this many devices, right? And their Wi-Fi systems can't handle a 3X, 4X uh, amount of devices when they left. I think it's interesting, like it depends on the sector you're in. Like I always say like charter schools or private schools, right? They could use the pace of technology and keeping up uh, with technology as a recruitment tool. But public schools is so much of it's tied to your budget. I think it goes back to your original question. It's like making the right decision in the first place because <laughs> you can't afford to make a mistake. Yeah. And, and you know, you so. know, one of those mistakes that was very public was when Los Angeles Unified bought a ton of iPads and then it was a colossal disaster. And they spent like a, something like a billion dollars on these iPads and then they weren't used in the right way and nobody liked it. And kids were messing around the system and getting around it. And there was just all these kind of pitfalls that somebody somewhere didn't understand what was going on. And that's, that's unfortunate. And they didn't understand what was going on in the classroom. I think that's the most important piece. No one asked the teachers. Yeah. I've been around for 20 years. Generally initiatives fail when the technology people think they know more than the teachers in the classroom and they think they know how people are going to use it and they don't involve the teachers in the decision. I think that's generally when you see the biggest failures. And that's across the tech ecosystem, isn't it? Because you're talking about design decisions that are made by the people developing the devices. You're talking about the software decisions for the programming and the applications and so forth. And then you've got the implementation and rollout at the district level. And so there are multiple conversations taking place, often without the input of teachers, long before those devices show up in the classroom. The biggest thing you see is like um, interactive flat panels. I find that happens the most there. Like the ones who are truly focused on the classroom tend to get teachers involved in the design process. Um, Promethean is an example that we worked with on their last design phase, had teachers come in and wear the kind of the sensor gloves and watch them use the board so they could tell what pieces of the board they were touching because the higher up on the board, the less likely they are to touch it. So anyway, my point, your point is well taken. Even when you're designing products to be put into tech, um, you should be engaging teachers who are going to actually be using it. Yeah, I, that's that's really smart. During the pandemic, we've had, like you mentioned, this acceleration towards one-to-one, and teachers haven't necessarily been prepared for that because no nobody can like say next month you're going to go one-to-one and r- remotely. Like we can't really predict the future that way. There have been some some stark digital divides because of um, 
that that the pandemic brought to light that some kids have the technology, as Fred was saying, that kids were coming to school with more advanced technology and other kids just don't. And so how how can ed tech companies really aid in the reduction of that digital divide and help make it so that those that divide isn't so great? You know, I don't know what we can do, honestly, that's in our power, except to try to be as honest and transparent as possible, because ultimately we're not making any decisions. You know what I mean? We're just presenting solutions. The biggest obvious issue that COVID has brought to light is just plain old access to the internet and the lack of hotspots and internet access, especially in rural areas and low-income areas. You know, from our perspective, thinking out of the box, partnering with other people that can help bringing real solutions, not being myopic about this is just the product I sell and it's the only thing I'm going to worry about because your product is going to work with something else. It's got to, you know, nothing is a standalone system. Um, I think that's what's unique about, you know, resellers like ourselves. We have really the ability to do that. I can't expect a manufacturer is just selling one piece of software or one piece of equipment to get too involved. I know they talk with other so uh, manufacturers to see if there's partnership opportunities, but it's really the job of folks like myself. That's my point of view is that we should be the curator, like you mentioned in the, in the intro of the best in ed tech. We should be bringing solutions together that combine these various solutions together to give schools something that, that actually works because otherwise, and you know, the benefit to the customer honestly is, is if it doesn't work, you can come to me and blame me. If you're working with individual manufacturers, they're all going to blame each other. <laughs> That's then, that tends to be what happens. It's not my laptop, it's their software. It's not my software, it's their laptop. Um, we had that issue, actually, um, a big installation of flat panels up in Northern Cal, and they switched, um, they upgraded to the new version of their uh, access point, and all of a sudden what they wanted to do didn't work, and they blamed us. You know, it was the panel. It wasn't the access point. And it took us, honestly, like two, it, it took us over a year to resolve it. One group of people, obviously, who are constantly lobbying school boards are parents. And so I think one of the things that would be interesting to hear from you is what parents can do to influence the kind of purchases that are being made. What should they be looking at in terms of privacy, safety, those kinds of issues when they go to a school board and say, we want these improvements and we want to purchase, we want you to purchase these kinds of devices. I mean, stay informed clearly. I mean, be involved with your kid and understand what's going on. Um, and I think you see that, you know, I think, but it's always the same group of parents, right? It's like when I was, my kids were growing up. It was always the core group of us who volunteered to coach and volunteered to do the fundraising. The squeaky wheel gets the attention, as they say. So, you know, trying, I think it's up to the school boards to, it's incumbent upon them to try to get a broader, more diverse group of parents involved in the discussion. Because I think parents do speak up, but it's, if it's always the same parents, um, they do have a lot of influence. No, there's no doubt about it. So it's all about being involved and staying informed. Um, I think this generation of parents too, I would hope is more tech savvy because most of them have started growing up with technology. 
I don't know what the solution is. I always say we don't really have a kid problem. We have a parent problem. <laughs> it always starts with us. To some extent, it's true. You know, um, the more you are involved with your kid and the more you know what's going on in their classroom, the more informed you are, the, the more you can give input. I want to go back a little bit because I was thinking about um, the use or the access piece of everybody having access to the internet and how this has really created this um, divide now. If you watch TV and you watch the commercials by the cell companies, they say, you know, we cover 97% of America. And yet we know that many places still don't really have the kind of access that they should, or if they do, it's incredibly slow and, and very difficult to get. What role do you see or what what ways could we make a partnership with cell phone carriers and with schools or municipalities or whatever the case may be to provide that that broadband level of service in these rural areas where it, it seems like there's not a lot of options? What you're seeing now, and there's been a couple of articles recently about school districts actually deciding they're going to put the citywide Wi-Fi up. We're working with the school district in Southern California now to do that because it's a small community. I think it's going to, you know, cost them three or $400,000, but the entire city will be wired and the school district is going to take that, you know, on as their initiative to kind of combat this. And I saw a couple other articles recently about this similar school district, you know, other school districts considering similar initiatives I think there's multiple problems. It's not just about internet access, okay? There's also the fact that many low-income kids don't have devices. So even if they have internet access, they're trying to do their homework on a cell phone, okay? And that just doesn't work. Um, I think there's a real opportunity to engage the community, form some sort of nonprofit um, organization take the tremendous amount of used Chromebooks that are going to be flooding the market that are super inexpensive that someone like myself, I could go to a school district and buy all their old Chromebooks for 10 or $15 a piece. They still work. They still get access to the internet, form some sort of nonprofit and some sort of computers for families program where you partner with a cable company to provide the low cost internet access for like $10 a month. Um, and you provide these low-cost devices to kids so they have a real device to work on when they are on the internet. There's probably millions of these devices that are being thrown away every year from schools that they're like, we're done with them, we're going to replace them with our new next wave. That's the real opportunity in my mind. I've talked to a couple of school districts about this, but it's hard to do because you have to, you know, you have to fundraise, you have to that there is a cost. I think that your idea is a really interesting one. And obviously there are some non-tech models for this. There are programs in New York, for instance, to get restaurant food out to food shelters and to food banks rather than having it go to waste. And we need to look at technology and our informational diet in the same way. It's a little bit above my pay grade to try to figure out how to do it, but it's nice to know that there are models out there. Also this, the hotspot issue, it's also problematic for a lot of schools who don't want to give hotspots to kids at home because they end up connecting their Xbox and everything else to it. What we're seeing now is manufacturers are launching devices with the cell, you know, Chromebooks, especially with um, cell built in, cell service built in. I know Qualcomm's doing a real big push to get 5G into devices um, 
and uh, HP is rolling out a device, I believe, later this year. Um, Samsung had one they rolled out last year. Well, it's really been fascinating because among so many other stressors on our society, COVID has been a stress test for the internet and for the infrastructure that was built. I'm actually working on this manuscript called The Rise of the Digital Mob, and I'm in a phase where I'm looking at the technical origins of the internet. And it is remarkable that something that was designed 50 years ago seems almost infinitely expandable. It's It's been a remarkable invention. And I think that you know one of the things I love about this particular podcast is that there's so much about the internet and educational technology that's positive. And what we have to do, obviously, as in so many other areas, is minimize the downside. And, you know, for instance, with the hotspots, when we were talking to Jeannie, she was talking about the fact that the school had to basically double its data allowance because it was proving so popular. Now, how much of that was school-oriented? That's another conversation. Um, but, yeah, clearly we ha- we've got a lot of work to do, and it's nice to hear uh, that this is something that you guys are thinking about. Yeah. So looking forward, Mark, what are some of the trends that um, IT departments and school districts should be following as we go forward? I don't think we're going back to the normal ever. I think this blended learning, blended now meaning some kids are at home and some are in the classroom is here to stay. Their acceleration of one-to-one and take-home programs I just don't see how schools can say back to business as usual when this is all over. Parents will not, I don't see parents standing for it. They better be ready for the next pandemic that hits and assure their community that they are. So I think this remote learning is here to stay. I think it accelerates the need for professional development in the classroom. I think it accelerates the need for these really super flexible classrooms. If you have to social distance while you're in, we can't be go back to the traditional way of doing business. I just don't see it. So, and I think that is incumbent on the manufacturers to design products that are easier to use, um, consume less bandwidth, have longer lasting batteries. I mean, all those issues the need, I think, as as more and more of this schoolwork is done online and as, as kids spend more time on these devices, that ed tech companies from hardware all the way through to implementation need to be thinking about privacy and safety really at the forefront um, because there are so many things we see popping up. The other thing that um, I think is important is bullying <laughs> online especially now that these kids are doing these Zoom meetings. Well, when we did our our first year in review, which happened to be our first show, we talked about Zoom bombing as being one of the interesting phenomena to arise out of the pandemic. And you're absolutely right. I mean, there's this sense that if there is going to be a new technology or a new app, kids will find some way to bully with it. And so that gets to prevention, education, ethics, um, all topics that we talk about. Yep. With giving kids these devices in their homes and the opportunity to bully and to find inappropriate things online and different things like that, it just becomes much more 
challenging. So for example, when I was, when I was younger, <laughs> a kid, I remember learning about the anarchist cookbook and trying to figure out how I could get my hands on that uh, just because I was interested. And it was very difficult to do, but I don't think finding something like that online would be challenging at this point. And so when you put those devices in the kid's home, then, um, then that's really, it opens up opportunities for that to happen. Any thoughts on that kind of stuff, Mark? I think there's a lot of solutions out there, obviously web filters and other things, key, keyword searching. Um, the thing that um, is pretty much missing though, is like going back to the Zoom. It, I can tell what kid's typing on a device, but now kids are going to these breakout sessions and breakout rooms on their own in Zoom and verbally, I can't monitor that. I know we've, I've been developing with, uh, with some of my partners on the side. We started an eSports arena, something called Healthy Player One, which mm. gives the kids the ability to record the session if they feel they're being harassed and submitted to their teacher or coach. And now we're looking at expanding that into like healthy student ones for, the, for, this, for this express purpose of dealing with the, the reality of, of Zoom or team meetings where kids may be getting harassed, you know, verbally and visually, not just because kids are typing something. Well, that's been an issue, I think, with some of the Google applications, Jethro, if I recall correctly, that, you know, you have situations where uh, kids are literally using the comments section of Google Docs to bully each other as the class is going on, or teachers forgetting to shut down a Google meeting and students just laying into each other after the teacher has gone away. So one of the one of the underlying concepts of cyber traps are these kind of unexpected things that trip us up. And I, I think we just need to keep educating people um, about all of the different risks that are out there. So Mark, we would really like to thank you for coming in and talking with us today. It has been a real pleasure to hear uh, from someone who's working the business side of things and for your insights, so thank you. Absolutely. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. That wraps up this episode of the Cybertraps podcast. In the coming weeks, we will continue our coverage of emerging trends in a variety of areas, including digital misconduct, cyber safety, cybersecurity, privacy, and the challenges of high-tech parenting. Along the way, we'll talk to our growing collection of interesting experts who are helping us to understand the risks and rewards of digital technology. And you can find the Cybertraps podcast on all your favorite podcast apps. And we hope that you'll share the show with your friends and colleagues and reach out to us if you have questions or topic suggestions. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Jethro Jones. Fred is at Cybertraps. And we want to thank our guest today, Mark Netka of STS Education, for being here as well. And if you're still listening, you must have enjoyed what you heard. So please leave us a five-star rating and review in your podcast player of choice. We appreciate having you in our audience and look forward to having you join us for our next episode. There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things? You need flexible time. When added into your master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, 
check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flexible time without all the headaches you get with it usually. Its intuitive design and SIS integration makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com BE. Do you want to save time on prep work, increase student achievement for all of your students, reliably meet tier one standards? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com B to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve these goals. That's IXL.com B-E.